If you feel like your business is drowning in inefficiencies, it might be time to decode the problem and break it down by the numbers. Let's start with 37,000. That's the vast community of business owners who've embraced NetSuite. 25, that's the number of years that NetSuite has been revolutionizing financial workflows and accelerating success. Which brings us to one. NetSuite offers tailored solutions, all consolidated within one streamlined platform. Unlock the power of NetSuite today. Download our acclaimed KPI checklist for free. Just head to netsuite.com slash cbs. That's netsuite.com slash cbs. CBS Mornings on this freezing Tuesday. I'm Gail King. I'm Tony DeCopel. I'm Nate Burleson. And we're going to begin with this, where we hope we never again have to be in the struggle against this pandemic. But here we are. More than 142,000 Americans were in hospitals as of Sunday with the coronavirus. That's according to the federal government. The vast majority unvaccinated. Now, that was more than we'd ever seen before. The American Academy of Pediatrics says more than 580,000 children tested positive for the virus last week. That is also an all-time high. This is not good. Pediatric cases have almost tripled since the start of December. Chicago schools reached a deal late last night for kids to return tomorrow. They've been out of school for five days. Millions of parents nationwide face some very tough questions. Balancing the benefits of in-person schooling with the risk their kids could get sick in the classroom. Elise Preston is reporting for us from Chicago. Elise, good morning. It's good to see you. Good morning, Gail. Great to hear you. Late last night, Chicago teachers and city officials agreed to have staff return today and students to return in class tomorrow. Now, students will have missed four days and five days, a total, a total of five days by the time they walk through the doors tomorrow. Our goal throughout this entire process was to both get our students back to in-person learning as quickly as possible and prevent work disruptions. The bitter standoff grew contentious and heated, but late Monday night, compromise won. The city and the Chicago Teachers Union agreed to establish metrics where individual schools will go remote if there's a COVID outbreak resulting in percentages of teacher absences. There will be more thorough contact tracing and increased testing on staff and students. The district also plans to provide KN95 masks for students and staff. It's not a perfect agreement. It does include some important things, um, which are going to help safeguard ourselves in our schools. While it's good news for the families of the more than 340,000 students across Chicago, more than 5,000 schools across the country have gone virtual since the beginning of the year. In Philadelphia, over 90 schools switched to remote learning due to staffing shortages over Omicron. Yes, in the class for her to learn, but no, because I don't want her to get sick. In Los Angeles, the nation's second largest school district, classes resumed today. But students and staff have to test negative for the virus. And so far, more than 65,000 tests have come back positive. For parents like Sharon Obsas, her child will be at home for the start of the semester. He started having symptoms and I did a home test and he tested positive last night. He will be missing the first 10 days of back to school, sadly. Now, the entire teachers union in Chicago will vote on the proposed agreement tomorrow. It's uh, or sometime later this week. It's unclear if students will have to make up that missed time of five days. Tony. 
Uh, Lise Preston leading us off from Chicago. Elise, thank you very much. More than 10 million people in the Northeast are waking up to dangerously cold weather today. Temperatures have plummeted across the region with wind chills dipping below zero in many areas. Boston's high temperature today is expected to be just 12 degrees, forcing the city to close its schools, not because of COVID, but because of extreme cold. Temperatures in New York City, meanwhile, will struggle to reach 20 degrees. Yeah, and they say if you go outside, make sure every part of your body's covered. It's going mm -hmm. to be that bad in Chicago today and in New York. We're learning more about that terrible fire in New York City that killed 17 people over the weekend. Investigators say that the safety doors failed to automatically close as residents fled their apartments. Now, that allowed the smoke to rise, preventing anyone to escape, many people to escape. Officials blame the fire on an electric space heater. Several victims still remain in critical condition at this hour. Federal authorities have now joined this investigation. Absolutely heartbreaking details. This morning, Russia's government said it would not let talks with U.S. officials drag on. The U.S. is trying to prevent a possible invasion of Ukraine, a Russian neighbor and a U.S. ally. Diplomats from both sides met yesterday, and those talks are set to resume tomorrow. Nancy Cordes is at the White House. Nancy, good morning. Good morning. Both sides, Nate, say the conversations so far have been frank, but no big breakthroughs yet in these talks that are being watched by governments around the world. Very high stakes here. Speaking to reporters in Geneva yesterday, Russian's deputy foreign minister insisted, quote, we have no plans, no intentions to attack Ukraine. There's no reason to fear some sort of escalation scenario. And yet the Russians have made no moves to pull back the roughly 100,000 troops that are amassed along the Ukrainian border. Now, in these talks, the Russians are demanding that Ukraine and other former Soviet territories not be allowed to join NATO or align themselves with the West. Well, that is a total non-starter for U.S. officials, though they do say they are discussing a possible deal to pull back U.S. and Russian missile systems in the region. They're hoping that that would be enough to mollify the Russians. Now, tomorrow, the talks move to Brussels where NATO is headquartered, the U.S. looking to show the Russians that the U.S. and Europe are in lockstep and ready to impose serious, massive sanctions on Russia if it does invade Ukraine. Nancy, thank you very much. President Biden and Vice President Harris are headed to Atlanta today to focus on voting rights, and they're working to pass federal voting rights legislation by Martin Luther King Jr. Day. That is less than a week from right now. Ed O'Keefe is in Atlanta for us ahead of the speeches. Ed, good morning. It's not going to be easy to pass this legislation, is it? No, it isn't, Tony. Good morning. The president and vice president will start their day in Atlanta here at Ebenezer Baptist Church, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once served as co-pastor. From here, they'll head across town to rally Democrats for new voting rights legislation. But here in Georgia, critics say that on this issue, the president isn't moving fast enough. We haven't seen the type of leadership that we need to see from, from President Biden. Cliff Albright is co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund, part of a coalition of Georgia groups that say President Biden shouldn't come to Atlanta without concrete plans to pass voting rights legislation. What we really want to see, given that he came down here, is that he's got a, a ironclad deal in place. Anything short of that is, is really going to be disappointing. The Biden administration is pushing to pass two new voting rights bills, and the White House says the president today will call upcoming votes on them a turning point in the nation. In his speech, Mr. Biden will vow to defend your right to vote and our democracy, and will put pressure on the Senate to act. 
The first bill would establish national election standards by requiring all 50 states to offer at least two weeks of early voting. No excuse vote-by-mail options for every voter, a national voter ID standard, and same-day voting registration. Republicans generally oppose the bill. They also want same-day registration. And that's just, uh, you know, very difficult for any election official to manage. And I think that undermines trust in elections. The second bill would update the 1965 Voting Rights Act and force states with a history of discrimination to clear any potential changes to election laws with the Justice Department. Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says the bill overreaches. This is a bill to turn the partisan attorney general into a national elections czar. So with no Republican support, the voting rights legislation can't survive a filibuster vote. That means any debate over voting rights is first going to be about potentially changing Senate rules. The White House says the president today will reiterate support for changing the rules by allowing bills to pass with a simple majority. I support making an exception on voting rights for the filibuster. But Albright says the president needs to fight harder. He's got to give complete unequivocal support, not support, demand and call for filibuster reform. Well, it sounds like that's what's going to be said by the president today. We'll see. And then there's the issue of getting all Democrats on board. Adding pressure to the president, some members of Dr. King's family have said the nation should not celebrate MLK Day next Monday unless Congress passes that voting rights legislation. Gail? Oh, throwing down the gauntlet. A lot of frustration in Georgia. Thank you very much, Ed. Robert Durst, the millionaire who spent half of his life as a murder suspect, died yesterday. He was 78. Durst had just started a prison sentence for killing a woman described as his best friend. He was also suspected of killing his wife nearly 40 years ago. 48 Hours correspondent Aaron Moriarty has covered the Durst case for nearly two decades. Last September, a Los Angeles jury found Robert Durst guilty for the 2000 execution-style killing of Susan Berman. Seen here in failing health, Durst would only live to serve a few months of his life sentence without the possibility of parole. For decades, many believed he used his fortune to dodge justice. He was suspected first of killing his wife, Kathleen, who disappeared in 1982. Did you have anything to do with the disappearance of your wife? No. I don't know where she is. I don't know what happened to her. I don't know how it happened to her. Durst claimed he last saw her after dropping her off at a train station in suburban New York. Her body was never found, and there was never enough evidence to charge Durst with her murder. Twenty years later, he did face charges in another case, the gruesome murder and dismemberment of an elderly neighbor in Galveston, Texas. Durst said he acted in self-defense. With the jury, find the defendant, Robert Durst, not guilty. Durst seemed invincible until his own words helped do him in. In HBO's The Jinx in 2015, he made incriminating statements about his wife's disappearance and was caught on a hot mic mumbling what seemed to be a confession. After Durst's trial for the murder of Susan Berman ended with his conviction last fall, New York authorities hoped to see him finally face trial for his wife's murder. But they and Robert Durst ran out of time. So he won't be, he won't go on trial for the death of his wife. And in yet another stunning twist to this case, Durst's conviction... 
this recent conviction could be vacated because he died before his appeal. Under California law, the state court of appeals could order his conviction to be set aside. And apparently that's exactly what his attorney is going to ask for. So here's a man who's been on, on trial so many times. In Galveston, if you remember, he took the stand in his own defense, admitted he dismembered the victim, threw the head in the Galveston yeah. Bay, and the jury still acquitted him. Well, it's almost like he's escaping again. Yeah. But a tough way to escape with death. Yeah, but his words seem to be so incriminating. I'll never forget that scene in the jinx when we heard so, what he was saying. So haunting. I think most people know who he was. Yes. 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 He's, no, he's a known individual at this point. Uh, Aaron, thank you very much. Uh, turning overseas for a moment, North Korea fired what is believed to be its second ballistic missile in less than a week just after the U.S. and other countries warned about its, quote, destabilizing actions. South Korea's military detected the launch overnight, and it says this missile was much more advanced than the one fired last Wednesday. The U.S. is saying this launch did not pose a threat. However, the FAA ordered airports on the West Coast to stop ground operations for a short time. This morning, we have a new champion in college football. Georgia fans are celebrating like crazy after the Bulldogs won their first title in 41 years, beating Alabama 33-18 to last night. Georgia broke a seven-game losing streak to the Crimson Tide, including their conference championship game just five weeks ago. CBS Saturday morning co-anchor Dana Jacobson, she always does a great job, reports on the comeback that won them the title. Georgia sealed the deal late in the fourth quarter when Keely Ringo intercepted Heisman Trophy winner Bryce Young and ran it back for a 79-yard touchdown. I knew he was going to catch it. I didn't know he was going to run it back. The Bulldogs won their first championship since Herschel Walker carried them to a title in 1980. He's in there. Georgia's head coach, Kirby Smart, learned how to build a football powerhouse working under Alabama's Nick Saban through four championship victories. A lot of credit to Alabama for saving. They had a lot of injuries. You know, they lost Jameson Williams in a tough situation, but our kids kept fighting and never doubted. Bulldog running back Samir White hammered it into the end zone for the game's first touchdown in the third quarter, giving Georgia its first lead of the night. Pressure. Alabama answered back with their own touchdown to retake the lead. But Georgia bounced back. Three more touchdowns and a relentless defense proving too much for Alabama to overcome. And it's incomplete. Bulldogs former walk-on quarterback Stetson Bennett was overcome by emotion before the game ended, delivering what no Georgia quarterback could for over 40 years. I love this place. I love this team. I believe in myself. I want to win a national championship here. For CBS Mornings, I'm Dana Jacobson. Wow. Congratulations to Georgia. Yeah, that's a cool quarterback name. I know it has nothing to do with your skill, but that's a very cool quarterback <laughs> Sometimes it works, and it helps. That's yeah. some trenchant analysis there, Gail. <laughs> cool name. That's yeah. sports analysis. Yeah, okay. okay. That's right. <laughs> You're welcome. Do you ever feel like there's nothing new in the news? You know there are urgent things happening in the world around you, but all you hear is noise. That's why we made What Next? Our goal is to tell you the stories you haven't heard before, or maybe a different side to the story you thought you already knew all about. I'm Mary Harris, the host of What Next? And I love my job because it helps me cut through the noise of the news. And then I get to bring it to you. Together, we can figure out what next.